1: Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
0: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 337... I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We've got a great story today by Brad Torgerson. Now, I'll give you a little bit heads up. I did promise, or I tried to promise, maybe I'd get them Starship soap at soaps, and just how quick the week goes, man. <laughs> to be quite honest, there hasn't really been much happening in, the, in, in it, but it just seems like, and I went, oh, not a hoping in Wherever that I'm going to get that sorted out. So listen out again, but I will kind of get these soaps out and get it sorted. Starship Sova's very own Starship Sova bar of soap. So the main fiction is Ray of Light by Brad Torgerson. I'll give you a little heads up about Brad. Brad is a healthcare computer geek. He's not a magical engineer, by the way. No. Thank you for all the letters about that. Are oh, you kind? So he's a healthcare computer geek by day, a United States Army Reserve Chief Warrant Officer on the weekend, and a speculative fiction writer by night, award winning and award nominated. He is a regular in the pages of Analog Magazine and has published numerous pieces of short fiction in other venues, such as Mike Resnick's Galaxy Edge magazine and Orson Scott Codd's Intergalactic Medicine Show magazine. Brad's first novel, The Chaplain War, which is based on the short analogue piece, The Chaplain's Assistant and The Chaplain's Legacy, is currently slated for an October 2014 Bane Books release. Brad also has two short fiction collections, Lights in the Deep, which came out in 2013, and he's got one due in late 2014, Races of the Night, and they're both from Wordfire Press. Haven't been married for 20-plus years. Go on, Brad there, sir. Present lives in Utah with his wife and daughter. Like I say, this story came out in a December two thousand and eleven edition of Analog Science Fiction Magazine. This one was when it was Stanley Schmidt was editing it, and like I say, it's in Brad's collection "Lights in the Deep," and it was also in the Nebula Award Showcase two thousand and thirteen as well. So there you go, a fantastic story. It is narrated by Steve Thomas Howell. Now, after retiring from the military service in 2013, Steve began pursuing an MFA in creative writing at the University of Tampa. He writes short stories and is working on his first novel. Steve serves as a slush reader for the Tampa Review Online and assistant editor and occasional narrator for the growing collection of genre podcasts at the District of Wonders. He certainly does, Steve. Thank you very much. He lives in Florida with his wife, two sons and one hyperactive dog. Like I said, I'll put a link on dot stevethomashowell.com as well if you want to pop over there. There you go, sir. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
1: Ray of Light by Brad R. Torgerson. My crew boss, Jake, was waiting for me at the sea-lock door. I'd been eight hours outside, checking for micro-fractures in the metal hull. Tedious work, that. I'd turned my helmet communicator off so as not to be distracted. The look on Jake's face spooked me. What's happened? I asked him, seawater water dripping from the hair of my beard. Jenna was all I got in reply, which was enough. I closed my eyes and tried to remain calm, fists balled around the ends of a threadbare of cloth towel wrapped around my neck. For a brief instant, the hum and clank activity of the sub-garage went away, and there was only my mental picture of my daughter sitting in her mother's lap, two, maybe three years old, a delightful nest of unruly ringlets sprouting at odd angles from her scalp. She'd been a mischief maker from day one, hell on wheels in a confined space like Deepwater Twelve. Jenna was much older now, but that particular memory was burned into my brain because it was the last time I remember seeing my wife smile. Tell me, I said to my boss. Jake ran a hand over his own beard. All of us had given up shaving years ago when the gel, cream, and disposable razors ran out. It seems she went for a joyride with another teenager. How the hell did they get a sub without someone saying something? The Evans boy, Bart, he's old enough to drive. I've had him on rotation with the other man for a few weeks to see if he'd take to it. We need all the help we can get. Yeah, yeah, skip it. Where are they now? Jake coughed and momentarily wouldn't meet my gaze. We don't know he said. I tasked Bart with a trip to Deepwater 4, the usual swap and trade run. He's now, there now, two hours overdue. The acoustic transponder on the sub, I said. It's either broken or they turned it off. Good hell, even idiots know not to do that. Jake just looked at me. I pivoted on a heel and headed back the way I'd come. With my wetsuit still on, I didn't have to change. I grabbed the first sub I could muscle out of its cradle. Over my shoulder, I said, Whoever's on the next sortie, tell him I'm giving him a the day off. Where are you going to look? Jake said. There's thousands of miles of dark water in every direction. I know a place, I said. Jenna told me about it once. My daughter was four when she first began asking the inevitable questions. How come we don't live where it's dry and sunny? All three of us were perched at the tiny family table in our little compartment. Lucille didn't even look up from her plate, as if she hadn't heard Jenna at all. Too much of that lately for my taste. I opted not to call my wife out on it. Lucille had become hot and cold. Either she was screaming mad or stone quiet, and I'd got tired of the screaming, so I settled for the quiet. Folding my hands thoughtfully in front of me, I considered Jenna's inquiry. There isn't anywhere that's dry and sunny. Not anymore. But Chloe and Joey are always going to the park to play, Jenna said. I want to go to the park, too, I grimaced. Chloe and Joey was a kid's show from before, from before everything. Lucille had been loath to let Jenna watch it, but had caved when it became obvious that Chloe and Joey were the only two people, well, animated talking teddy bears, actually, capable of getting our daughter to sit still and be silent for any length of time. We'd done what every parent swears they won't do, and the LCD had become our babysitter. Now it was biting us in the butt. My wife stabbed at the dark green leaves on her plate, tines on her fork, making pronounced tack noises on the scarred plastic. There used to be parks, I said, but everything is covered in ice now, and it's dark, not sunny. I can't even see the sun anymore. But why? Jenna said, her utensils abandoned on the table. The room lost focus, and I briefly remembered my NASA days. Those had been happy times. Washington was pumping money back into the program because the Chinese were threatening to land on the moon. I'd been on the International Space Station when the aliens abruptly came. It was a gas. I got to pretend I was a celebrity. Being interviewed remotely by the news, along with my crewmates, the mammoth alien ship parked next to us in orbit for three whole days. A smooth sphere of nickel and iron, miles and miles in circumference. No obvious drive systems, nor apertures for egress. No sign nor sound from them which might have indicated their intentions. Then the big ship promptly broke orbit and headed inward toward Venus. Six months later, The sun began to dim. It's hard to explain, I said to Jenna, noting that my wife's fork hovered over her last bit of hydroponic cabbage. Some people came from another place, another star far away. We thought they would be our friends, but they wouldn't talk to us. They made the sunshine go away, and everything started getting cold really fast. They turned off the sun? Jenna said, incredulous. Nothing can turn off the sun, I said, but they did put something in the way. It blocks the sun's light from reaching Earth, so the surface is too cold for us to live there anymore. I remembered being ordered down in July. We landed in Florida. It was snowing heavily. NASA had already converted over by presidential order to devising emergency alternatives. The sun had become a shadow of itself, even at high noon we cobbled together a launch, NASA's final planetary probe, to follow the path of the gargantuan alien ship and find out what was going on. The probe discovered a mammoth cloud orbiting just inside of Earth's orbit. Countless little mirrors, each impossibly thin and impossibly rigid. No alien ship in sight, but the cloud of mirrors was enormous and growing every day. By themselves, they were nothing, but together... They were screening out most of the sun's light, a little more gone every week. "'So now we have to live at the bottom of the ocean?' Jenna asked. "'Yes,' I said. "'It's the only place warm enough for anything to survive.'" Which may or may not have been true. In Iceland, they'd put their money on surface habitats, constructed near their volcanoes. Chance a gamble. Irregular eruptions made it dangerous, which is why the United States had abandoned the Big Island plan in Hawaii. Besides, assuming enough light was blocked, cryogenic precipitation would be a problem. First, the oxygen would rain out, and then, eventually, the nitrogen too, which is why the United States had also abandoned the Yellowstone plan. People were dying all over the world when NASA and the Navy began deploying the deep water stations. The Russians and Chinese, the Indians, all began doing the same. There was heat at the boundaries between tectonic plates, Life had learned to live without the sun near hydrothermal vents. Humans would have to learn to live there, too. And we did, after a fashion. I explained this as best I could to my daughter. She grew very sad, a tiny, perplexed frown on her face. I don't want to watch Chloe and Joey anymore, she said softly. Lucille's fork clattered onto the floor, and she fled the compartment, sobbing. Number six is electronics, air circulation, and propulsion motor blended into a single complaining whine as I pushed the old sub through the eternal darkness along the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Occasionally, I passed one of the black smokers, chimneys made of minerals deposited by the expulsion of superheated water from along the tectonic ridge. The water flowed like ink from the tops of the smokers. Tube worms, white crabs, and other life shied away from my lights. I was watching for the telltale smoker formation that Jenna had told me about. It was a gargantuan one, multiple chimneys sprouting into something the kids had dubbed Gax Antlers. Dan McDermott had joined the search and was 200 yards behind me, his own lights arrayed in a wide pattern, looking. We both spotted our target at the same time. I could see why the kids might have liked the spot, in addition to the bizarre beauty of the antlers. There was a shallow series of depressions surrounding the base, each just big enough to settle a sub down into. Cozy, private. I saw the top of a single sub, just barely poking up over the rock and sand. I asked Dan to hang back while I pinged them with a short-range sonar. When I got no answer, I motored right up to the edge of the depression, turned my exterior lights on extra bright, and aimed them down through the half-sphere pilot's canopy. I blushed and looked away. Then I flashed my lights repeatedly until the two occupants inside got the hint and scrambled to get their clothes on. One of them, a girl, I think, though not Jenna, dropped into the driver's seat and flipped a few switches until my short-range radio scratched and coughed at me. Hate to ruin your makeout, I said. Who are you, came the girl's tense voice. Too young, I thought. Not your father, if it makes any difference, I said. How did you get here? Same as you. A boy's head poked into view. He took the radio mic from the girl. Get out of here. This is our place, he said, his young voice cracking with annoyance. I was tempted to tell him to shove his blue balls up his ass, then remembered myself when I'd been that young, coughed quietly into my arm while I steadied my temper and tried diplomacy. I swear, I said, I won't tell a soul about this little noogie nook. I just want to get my daughter back alive. Jenna Layton is her name. She's about your age. Jenna, said the girl. You know her? I know her name. She's part of the Glimmer Club. The boy tried to shush her and take the mic away. That's a secret. Who cares now, the girl said. We're busted anyway. What's the Glimmer Club, I said. The girl chewed her lip for a moment. Please, I said. It could be life or death. It's probably easiest if I just show you, she said. Give me a few minutes to warm up our blades. I'll tell you what I can once we're underway. Jenna was six when Lucille went to live on Deepwater 8. At the time, it had seemed reasonable. A chance for my wife to get away from her routine at home, be around some people neither of us had seen in a while, and get the wind back into her sails. It certainly wouldn't be any worse than it had been with all the bickering and chronic insomnia. The doc had said it would do Lucille some good, so we packed her off and waved goodbye. On Jenna's bunk wall, there was an LCD picture frame that cycled through images as a nightlight. I originally loaded it with cartoon characters, but once she swore off Chloe and Joey, I let her choose her own photos from the station's substantial digital library. I was surprised to see her assemble a collection of sunrises, sunsets, and other images of the sun, a thing she'd never seen. At night, I sometimes stood in the hatchway to the absurdly small family laboratory and watched Jenna lying in her blankets, eyes glazed and staring at the images as they gently shuffled past. What are you thinking about? I once asked. How come it didn't burn you up? She said. What? Teacher told us the sun is a big, giant ball of fire. That's true. And why didn't it burn everyone up? It's too far away for that. How far? Millions of miles. Oh. A few more images blended from one to the next in silence. Daddy? Yes, I said, stroking Jenna's forehead. Am I ever going to see the sun? For real? I stopped stroking. It was a hell of a good question, one I wasn't sure I was qualified to know the answer to. Differences between the orbital speed of the mirror cloud and Earth's orbital velocity, combined with dispersion from the light pressure of the solar wind, would get Earth out from behind the death shadow eventually. How long this would take, or if it could happen before the last of us gave out, a few thousand remaining from a population of over 10 billion, was a matter of debate. Maybe, I said. The surface is a giant glacier now. We can't even go up to look at the sky anymore because the ice has closed over the equator and it's too thick for our submarines to get through. If the sun comes back, things will melt, but it will probably take a long, long time. Jenna turned in her bunk and stared at me, her eyes piercing as they always were when she was thinking. Why did the aliens do it? I sighed was the best question of all. <sighs> Nobody knows, I said. Some people think the aliens live a long, long time, and that they came to Earth and did this once or twice before. But why block out the sunshine, especially since it killed people? Maybe the aliens didn't know it would kill people. Last time the Earth froze over like it's frozen now, there were no people on the Earth. So the aliens might not have known better. "'But you tried to say hello,' she said. "'When you were on the space station, you told them you were there. "'You tried to make friends. "'They must be really mean to take the sun away after all you did. "'The aliens are bullies.' "'I couldn't argue with that. "'I thought the same thing more than once. "'Maybe they are,' I said. "'But there's not much we could do about it when they came.' And there's not much we can do about it now, other than what we are doing. We've figured out how to live on the seafloor where it's still warm and where the aliens can't get us. We'll keep on finding a way to live here, as long as it takes. I was a bit surprised by the emotion I put into the last words. Jenna watched me. I leaned in and kissed her cheek. Come on, it's time to sleep. We both have to be up early tomorrow. Okay, Daddy, she said, smiling slightly. I wish Mama could give me a kiss goodnight, too. You and me both, I said. Daddy? Yes. Is Mama going to be all right? I paused, letting my breath out slowly. I sure hope so, I said, settling into the lower bunk beneath my daughter's, a bunk originally built for two, which felt conspicuously empty. The clubhouse was actually a restored segment of Deepwater 3, long abandoned since the early days of the freeze-up. Each of the deepwater stations were built as sectional rings, large titanium cylinders joined at their ends to form spoked hexagons and octagons. Deepwater 3 had been stripped and sat derelict since a decompression accident killed half her crew. We'd taken what could be taken and left the Hulk to the elements. The kids had really busted their butts getting it livable again. I admired their chutzpah as I motored alongside the revived segment, its portholes gleaming softly with light. They'd rigged a smaller, cobbled-together heat engine to take advantage of the exhaust from the nearby hydrothermal vents, and I was able to mate the docking collar on my sub with the collar on the section as easy as you please. The girl and boy from the other station didn't stick around to watch. They took me and Dan just far enough for us to see the distant light from the once-dead station, then fled. I didn't ask their names, but I didn't have to. I'd promised them anonymity in exchange for their help, and I was eager to get on board and find out what might have happened to my daughter. So far as I knew, I was the first adult to even hear about this place. Only nobody was home. Dan hung around outside, giving Deepwater 3 a once-over with his lights and sonar, while I slowly went through the reactivated section. It was a scene from a fantasy world. They'd used cutting torches to rip out all the bulkheads, leaving only a few thick support spars intact. The deck had been buried in soft, white, dry sand, and the concave ceiling had been painted in almost surreal sky blue. Indirect lights made the ceiling glow, while a huge heat lamp had been welded into the ceiling at one end, glaring down across the beach with a mild humming sound. Makeshift beach chairs, beach blankets, and other furniture were positioned here and there as the kids had seen fit. Several standalone LCD screens had been wired into the walls with horseshoes of disturbed sand surrounding them. I carefully approached one of the LCDs, my moist suit picking up sand on my feet and legs. Cycling through the LCD's drive, I discovered many dozens of movies and television programs, informational relics from before the aliens came. Videos about flying and surfing, hiking, camping, lots and lots of nature shows. I went to two more LCD screens and found similar content. I walked to the middle of the section, realizing that I hadn't stood in a space that unconfined and open since before we'd all gone below, and used my mobile radio to call Dan. He hooked up at the docking collar on the opposite end of the section and came in under the sun, stopping short and whistling softly. "'Can you believe this?' I said. "'Like me, Dan was an oldster from the astronaut days, "'though he'd never had any children or even a girlfriend "'since his wife had died in the mad rush to get to sea "'when the mirror cloud made life impossible on the surface. "'They've been busy,' Dan said. "'Is there anyone else here?' "'Not a soul,' I said, "'though it looks like they left in a hurry. "'How can you figure?' "'Lights were left on.' "'I looked around the room again.' Noting how many teenagers might fit into the space, and the countless prints in the sand. The somewhat disheveled nature of the blankets. Frankie and Annette, eat your hearts out, I said. Dan grunted and smiled. I was at a party or two like that back in flight school. Me too, I admitted. But something tells me they didn't just come here to get laid. Look at what they've been watching. Porn? Dan said. No. Yes, but not the kind you think. I flipped on the LCDs and started them up playing whatever video was cued in memory. Instantly, the space was filled with the sound of crashing waves, rock music, images of people skydiving and hang gliding, aerial sweeps of the Klondike, the Sahara, all shot on clear days. Very few clouds in the sky. It was non-stop sunshine from screen to screen to screen. Dan wasn't smiling anymore. He stared at the heat lamp in the ceiling, the false sky, and then back at the sand. You ever go to a church when you were a kid? Dan asked me. Not really. Dad was an atheist, My mom, a lapsed Catholic. I went to church when I was a kid. Baptist, then Episcopal, then Lutheran. My dad was a spiritual shopper. Anyway, wherever we went, certain things were always the same. The pulpit the huge Bible open to a given scripture, the wooden pews. But more than that, they all felt a certain way. They had a vibe. You didn't have to get the doctrine to understand what the building was meant for. What does this have to do with anything, Dan? I said, getting exasperated. Look around, man, Dan said, holding his arms wide. This is a house of worship. I stared at everything, not comprehending. Then... Suddenly, it hit me. The club isn't a club. What? The Glimmer Club, that's what she called it. She said many of the younger teens and a few of the older ones had started it up a couple of years ago. Not every kid was a member, but most of the other kids heard rumors. To be a member, you had to swear total secrecy. My father tended to consider all religions nuts, but he reserved special ire for the ones he called cults the cracked-up fringe groups with the truly dangerous beliefs. He'd pointed to Jonestown as a textbook example of what could go wrong when people let belief get out of hand. I experienced a quick chill down my spine. They're not coming back, I said. Where would they go? Dan asked. But I was already running across the sand to the hatch for my sub. Jenna was ten years old when her mother committed suicide. Neither of us was there when it happened, of course. Lucille had moved around from station to station for her last several months until the separate crew bosses on each of the stations got fed up with her behavior. Ultimately, she put herself into a sea lock without a suit on and flooded the lock before anyone could stop her. By the time they got the lock dry and could bring her out, she was gone. And I was left trying to explain all this to Jenna. Who cried for forty-eight hours straight and slept an additional day in complete physical and emotional exhaustion. For me, it was painful, but in a detached kind of way. Lucille and I had been coming apart for years. The docs mutually agreed that sunlight deprivation may have been part of the problem. It had happened with several others, all of whom had had to seek light therapy to try to compensate for their depression. In Lucille's case, the light therapy hadn't worked. In fact, nothing seemed to break her long, gradual decline into despair. I'd kept hoping Jenna, a mother's instinctive selflessness for the sake of her child, would pull Lucille through. But in hindsight, it was clear Jenna had actually made things worse. These thoughts I kept strictly to myself in the weeks and months that followed Lucille's departure from the living world. I pulled myself into my role as daddy, and held Jenna through many a sad night when the bad dreams and missing mommy got her and there was nobody for Jenna to turn to but me. Eventually, the nightmare stopped and Jenna started to get back to her old self, something I was so pleased about I had a difficult time expressing it in words. For Jenna's 12th birthday, I gave her a computer pad I'd squirreled away before committing to the deep. My daughter had been going nuts decorating half the station with chalk drawings, our supply of paper having long since been exhausted. The pad was an artist's model with several different style and programs for Jenna to use. It liberated her from the limited medium of diatoms on metal. And fairly soon, all the LCDs in our little family compartment were alive with her digital paintings. It was impressive stuff. She threw herself into it unlike anything I'd seen before. Vistas and landscapes, stars and planets, and people, lots of people. Lots of filtered representations of Lucille, usually sad. I dutifully recorded it all onto the family portable drive where I hoped, perhaps one day, if humanity made it out of this hole alive, Jenna's work might find a wider audience. She'd certainly won over many of the other people on Deepwater 12, and was even getting some nice feedback from some of the other stations as well. In retrospect, I probably should have seen the obvious. All of Jenna's art, with rare exception, had one thematic element in common. It all featured the sun, in one form or another. Sometimes as the focus of the work, but more often as merely an element. All kids do it, right? The ubiquitous yellow ball in the crayon sky with yellow lines sprouting out of it. Only Jenna's suns were warmer, more varied in hue and color. They became characters in their own right. When she discovered how to use the animation software on the pad, she went whole hog building breathtaking sequences of the sun rising, the sun setting, people and families frolicking beneath our benevolent yellow dwarf star called Sol. If ever the aliens who'd taken our star from us entered into Jenna's mind, it didn't show up in her work. But then few of us thought of the aliens in any real sense anymore. They'd come, and so far as we knew, they'd gone. Dealing with the repercussions of their single apocalyptic action had become far, far more important to us all than dealing with the aliens themselves. I remember this as number six creaked and groaned around me, the pressure warning lights letting me know that I was coming up too quickly, risking structural damage if I didn't bleed off pressure differences between the inside and the outside of the sub. Dan wasn't with me. I'd convinced him to go back and let the others know about the glimmer club and what the kids had done with Deepwater 3 behind our backs. He'd also been tasked with explaining why I had disobeyed direct orders from the crew boss, risking my life and the old sub to chase a wild hare through the vast, dark ocean. I couldn't be sure I was right. All I had to go on was a short conversation I'd had with Jenna on her 15th birthday, just a few months earlier. At that age, she'd spent most of her time with the other teens on the station, as teenagers throughout history have always been prone to do. Old me had stopped being the focus of her attention right about the time she'd hit puberty, which was why that particular conversation stood out. Dad, she said, does anyone ever go check anymore? On what? On the surface, up top. We used to send people all the time, but the thicker the ice got, especially when the equator closed over, the less point there seemed to be in it. So I don't think anyone has tried in several years. Why not? We can't just give up, can we? I mean, why are we doing any of this? People aren't ever going to go back to the surface. She had a good point. I'm afraid I hemmed and hawed my way through that one, leaving her with a perplexed and somewhat unhappy expression on her face. If any of her friends had gotten better answers from their parents, I never found out. Though I now suspected that our big failure as adults had been our inability to imagine that our children wouldn't be satisfied to just scratch out a living on the ocean floor. We had been through the freeze-out from the surface. We'd seen the destruction and the death brought by the forever night. We felt fortunate to be where we were, alive. But our kids? For them, the ice layer on the surface had become a thing of myth. An impenetrable but invisible bogey monster, forever warned about but never seen nor experienced. For the Glimmer Club, I suspect, it got to the point where they wondered if all of the adults weren't crazy or conspiring in a plot. How did anyone really know that the surface was frozen over? That aliens had blocked the sun? To blindly accept a fundamental social truth upon which everyone agrees is just part of what makes us human. But in every era, however dark or desperate, there have also always been hopeful questioners. I've not slept for almost two days. and knew it when I caught myself slumped at the controls. Chin in my chest. The sub's primitive autopilot beeping plaintively at me. Sonar pings still didn't show me any subs. But they had not shown me the underside of the ice sheet yet, either. I used the sub's computer to run some calculations based on the last known measurements, to have been taken on the ice sheet's thickness. I used these to double-check where I thought I was versus what the instruments were telling me, and sat back to ponder. Assuming the glimmer club had ascended as a group, without significant deviation, because the subs only have so much air and battery life to go around, I'd expected to spot them by now, or at least hear them. Several quick pauses to capture and analyze ambient water noise had yielded depressing silence. Not even the cry of whales filled the sea anymore, because the whales and other sea mammals had all died out together. If aliens had had no regard for human sapiens, what about the other intelligent creatures who had once called the Earth home? If ever the oceans reopened and humans reclaimed the planet, we'd find it an awfully empty place. Exhausted. I kept going up. Sonar pingbacks brought me awake the second time. There, a single object, roughly about the size of a sub. It was drifting, ever so lazily, back towards the bottom. I spent a few minutes echolocating, and when I did, my blood ran cold. There was a big crack in the pilot's canopy, and the top hatch was hanging open. Dreading what I might find, I pointed my lights into the canopy and examined the interior of the little sub, down its entire length. If I'd expected to see bodies, I was relieved to see only emptiness. Trained from birth to salvage, they'd stripped the sub and continued on, wherever that happened to be. Additional sonar pings sent back nothing. The ocean was silent in all directions, as black and lonely as space had ever been. On instinct alone, I resumed the long voyage to the ice. The general rocking of the sub wasn't what woke me. It was the occasional thumping against the hull. I sat straight up, almost ripping my headset off in the process. My neck and back hurt, and my hands were unsteady as I grasped the controls. No telling how long I'd been out that time. I scanned the control board, and the autopilot seemed satisfied. When I saw that the depth gauge read zero... I had to tap the screen a few times. Something had to be wrong. The knocking on the hull suggested I'd found the lower boundary of the ice sheet, where the seawater grudgingly turned to sludge. I'd never actually been up this high since the oceans closed over, so maybe the equipment was wonky this close to the frozen crust? I hit my lights, but just a few of them because I didn't have all the battery life left in the world. It took me at least a minute to figure out what I was seeing... A lapping line of water sloshed halfway up the canopy. Had I drifted into an air pocket on the other side of the ice? Scanning upward with the lights revealed nothing but blackness. But wait, not black blackness. There was a distinct hint of color in the void. I slowly reached a hand down and flicked the lights off, letting the gentle rocking of the boat and the knocking of the hull fill my ears. The blackness was pinpricked with white dots, and there was a glowing light in the very far distance. Only, glowing wasn't the right word. The light slowly but perceptibly began to grow in strength, and the blackness overhead began to graduate from obsidian to purple and finally flared into dark blue at the far, far horizon. No! My hands were shaking badly. I almost couldn't hit the switch to extend the sub's single disused radio aerial. A tiny motor whined somewhere behind me, and I waited until the motor stopped before I gently rested my headset back onto my scalp, a gentle hiss of static filling my ears. I depressed the send button on the sub's control stick. This is Max Leighton speaking for Deepwater 12, the United States. If anyone can hear and understand this broadcast, please respond. The static crackled lifelessly. It was a vain hope. My signal couldn't go too far, but I had to try. I say again, this is Thomas Layton speaking. Daddy? My breath got in my throat. It had been a single word, broken by crackling interference, but it was probably the most beautiful word i had heard spoken in my entire life. Jenna, I said softly into my mic, please tell me that's you. You're just in time, her voice said. If I was relieved beyond words, she sounded excited to the point of bursting, but not because of me. Just in time for what, I said. The sun, she said. We got here just as it was going down and had to spend the night on the surface. We opened the top hatches and the air is breathable. Very cold, but breathable. Oh, Daddy, we knew it. We all knew it. I'm so glad you're here with us. Where the hell is here, Jenna? I can't see another soul. Go out on top and take a look, was all she said. It took me a minute to get the interior hatch to number six's stubby sail open. Then I climbed up the short ladder, banging side to side in the tight tunnel as the sub kept rocking. At the top hatch I paused, hands on the locking wheel. Nobody had breathed fresh air in almost two decades. Had I merely imagined my daughter's voice? It certainly was true I'd been in better mental states. Sleep deprivation will do that to you. But I'd certainly come too far to stop. So, what the hell? The wheel complained, then spun. And there was a hiss as the last bit of pressure difference bled off from the inside of the sub to the outside. If I'd done it right when I came up, I'd not get the bends. No deadly nitrogen bubbles in the blood. If I'd done it wrong, too late now. Jenna had been right. The air was brutally frigid and moving fast, almost a wind, but also so invigorating that I pulled myself up all the way out of the sail and rested my butt on the edge of the hatch. I looked out across the rolling sea of slushy ice, which appeared to extend for many, many miles in all directions. I also saw the sails of the other subs, four of them. The kids on those boats waved to me, and I waved back with both arms. If I'd been promising myself at the start of this trip that I'd skinned Jenna alive when I found her, that anger had long since melted into a bewildering feeling of astonished wonderment. Because Jenna was all right. The sun certainly was coming up. And not an apparitional, atrophied sun, as we'd all seen in the last days before going to sea. This was the real deal. It crested the horizon like a phoenix, A blast of yellow-orange rays shooting across the sky and into the belly of a bank of clouds to our west. The clouds lit up brilliantly, and there was a raucous cheer from the other subs. All the kids out on deck to see the miracle. I suddenly found myself cheering too. No, howling. I was on my feet, dangerously close to toppling off the sail and into the slush below, but I couldn't make it stop. I yelled until my voice was hoarse. I looked around, and I saw all the kids standing, hips and knees, rocking in time to the rhythm of their bobbing craft, eyes closed and arms stretching out to the sky, waiting, waiting. I suddenly knew what they were waiting for. I did the same. When the rays hit my skin, old, dark, and wrinkled, my nerves exploded with warmth, stupendous, almost orgasmic warmth. No electric heater was capable of creating such a feeling. I came back to myself and thought I saw my daughter waving to me from the sails of one of the other subs. I jumped into the ICC and swam in great strokes. Pulling myself out onto the back of Jenna's sub, I ignored the smiling but reserved faces of the other teenagers and used handrails on the sail to pull myself up to Jenna's level. I didn't ask if it was okay for a hug, as I had been doing since she turned 13. She had to politely tap my shoulders to get me to release her. "'Sorry,' I said, noting that water from my beard had gotten her face wet. "'It's okay,' she said, wiping it with her palms. "'I found the clubhouse,' I said. "'I was afraid that you—all of you—had gone off and done something really stupid.' Jenna looked down. "'Are you mad that I didn't tell you?' "'At first, I said. "'But it doesn't matter now. "'This is—this is just—incredible. "'The sun—' And gained in the sky. "'The old, dark neoprene in my wetsuit "'was growing hot and uncomfortable. "'I unzipped and pulled my arms and head out of the top, "'letting it drape around my waist. "'Delicious rays of light bathed my exposed, gray-haired chest. "'An unreasoning, almost explosive feeling "'of giddiness had seized me, "'and I had to fight to maintain my bearing "'as the kids on the sub, "'all the kids on all the subs, "'began laughing and shoving each other into the water.' paddling about and crooning like seals. "'Have you been in contact with anyone else?' I asked. "'We kept trying the radio,' Jenna said, never moving away from my arm, which had found its way protectively around her shoulders. "'But you were the first person we heard.' "'I wonder how many of the satellites still work,' I said, looking up into the fantastically, outrageously blue sky. "'We could rig a dish, one of the old v set units. "'I think we still have some down below.' "'We aren't going back,' Jenna said suddenly, detaching herself. "'I looked at my daughter. "'Where else can you possibly go? "'We don't care, Dad. "'We're just not going back there.' "'We swore it amongst the group, all of us. "'And what if the ice had still been solid? "'What would you have done then?' I said, "'a burst of sea wind suddenly giving me goosebumps. "'We don't know. "'You're goddamn lucky there was a gap to get through.' air to breathe. I'm not sure any of us have enough oxygen or battery power to get all the way back down. Jenna, for all I knew, you and the others were going to get yourselves killed. Jenna didn't meet my gaze. Somebody had to do something, she said. We had to know if there was a chance the sun had returned. We hoped. We hoped so much. You and Jake and the others, everybody from before the freeze-up. It was like you'd all given up. Everyone determined not to die, but also determined not to live, either. I nodded my head, slowly. "'So what's the plan now?' I asked. She looked up at me, smiling again. "'Baja.' "'What?' "'The Baja Peninsula is supposed to be a couple hundred miles northeast of here. "'We'll sail until we hit the shore.' "'And if you simply hit the pack ice?' we we'll leave the subs and keep going. Do you have any idea what you're saying? Where's your food? Where's your water? What kind of clothes do any of you have? What? We're not going back, Daddy! She'd shouted it at me. Her fists balled on my chest. Okay, okay, I said, thinking. But consider this. You all stand a much better chance if you have help. Now that we know the ice is clearing and the air is breathable, and that the sun is back again by God... We can bring the others up, all the deepwater crews, and the stations, too. It will take time, but if we do it in an organized, methodical fashion, we'll all stand a better chance of making land. Though I'm not quite sure what we can expect to find when we get there. Some of the other kids had pulled themselves out of the water to come listen to me talk. A few of them were nodding their heads in agreement. If you want, I said to them, looking around, I'll be the one to go back down. But I'll need to get some air and electric power off these other subs first. I sure hope you all brought enough food to last for a week or two. It's going to be at least that long, or longer, before anyone else comes up from below. I went back down with what few reserves the kids could give me about 900 digital pictures of the open water, the marvelously full sun, and the blue, blue sky, and a hell of a lot of hope in my heart. It wouldn't be easy. Not all of the adults would want to believe me at first, and raising the stations after so long at depth was liable to be even more dangerous than sinking them had been in the first place. But I suspected Jenna was right. We couldn't go back, not after what I'd just seen. So I slowly dropped back down, gently, gently, like a feather. The old sub wouldn't last a fast trip to the bottom, just as it wouldn't have lasted a fast trip to the top and though the darkness had resumed its hold, I felt light as a bird on the breeze. Three days later, I stood in Deepwater Twelve's sub-garage. Dan had dutifully spread the word ahead of me, and he was in a crowd of adults as I slowly climbed down off Number Six's sail. You didn't find them, Jake said sternly. I could sense his extreme piss-off as I walked across the deck towards the group. Discipline was vital on the Deepwater cruise. "'and I'd violated that discipline so extremely. "'I'd be lucky if Jake didn't bust my nose for me. "'Oh, I found them all right,' I said. "'Dead?' Dan said, voice raised slightly. "'No,' I said. "'Take a look.' "'I tossed Dan the camera I'd used on the surface. "'He looked at me questioningly, and I just looked back. "'Dan turned the camera over, its little LCD screen exposed, "'and flipped the switch to slideshow. "'Adults crowded around Dan.' including Jake. They gasped in unison. It can't be, Dan said, voice caught in his throat. It is, I said. And if you all don't mind, my daughter is waiting for us to join her up top. We've got a land expedition that needs support. I promised her I'd get her and the other kids the help they needed to make it successful. Dan cycled through the pictures and began playing one of the video files I'd also shot. The camera's little speaker blared loudly, laughing, shouting teens and the sloshing of water against the hull of a sub I'd been standing on when I took the footage. I noted tears falling down the faces of many of my compatriots, and for a tiny instant, wished that Lucille had lived long enough to see this. No matter. Lucille was a memory, but it was apparent I'd given the living something they desperately needed, without even knowing it. Just as much as I desperately needed it when I first opened Number 6's top hatch and smelled the tangy frigid salt air whipping through my hair jake the crew boss was shouting orders with a wide smile on his face while the camera made its way reverently from hand to hand i looked up at the ceiling my eyes glazing and my spirit going up through the black deep to the top where jenna waited hang on little one daddy'll be back soon
0: There you go. Don't forget copyright is Brad. Brad, thank you so much for that. And Steve, cracking the narrator. Thank you, sir. That is it. What's going on in the Starship Silver World? Well, like you say, as you know, we've just kind of launched that. If you didn't know, we certainly should know by now. farfetch fetched fables. Do go over there and subscribe. It's doing wonders. Actually, I'm chuffed a bit with it, you know what I mean. First few weeks out of the kind of the starting blocks, and it's cracking download figures. Not as much as Tales to Terrify, mind you. I don't know what Larry's doing over there, but they are flocking. They're flocking to the cause of Tales to Terrify with Larry over at um, well that tales to terrify. So please, you know, check out other you know, other shows we've got in a district of wonders. That would be very nice. Until next week. Just like to say, good night from me.
1: this terrible ordeal?
0: Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of and Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for watch. Airlock will be opened in 3, two, one.